You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Jesus, we uh, acknowledge that you are ga- that you are here as we gather in your name, um, that you're here by your Spirit. Uh, and so, Jesus, this morning, uh, we pray in some ways that you would guard our hearts against going through the motions. We want to bring our whole life before you, and we ask, Jesus, that you would do something with it, because you promised to do. And so I pray you would bring your encouragement this morning to those who need encouragement. I pray that you'd bring your healing to those who need your healing. I pray that you would bring your inspiration to those who need inspiration. And Jesus, we pray amongst all of us that you would bring your love and your grace. Because you love us. And so we stand as your people, put together by your love and your grace. And we pray that you do something in us. We pray this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us today. We, uh, a little later in the service, at the end of, uh, uh, or as we bring the service to a close, this is our communion service, and so I wanted to remind you of that. Uh, if you got one of these little cups on your way in, great. If you didn't, uh, we've got a couple ushers. I see Ron down here, and then there are a few baskets kind of at the corner, so you'll want to have one of those uh, for at the end of the message uh, uh, today, and so I'll just encourage you to that as we go. And and before I I jump in, I just have a couple quick announcements going on in the life of our church. First, I want to let you know that uh, that Clara Tun, uh, many of you know Clara, Uh, Clara has joined our staff team as our nursery and preschool coordinator, and so that's an exciting thing. Uh, You can give a clap, Sharon, that's very good. Uh, And so Clara is going to be joining us at the beginning of September here. Uh, And then Gemma, who has been doing that role, is moving uh, into our our, our, uh, youth Sunday school ministry. So we'll have a Sunday school for our youth grades 6, 7, and 8 starting in September. She's going to be leading that, and she's also assisting Chris on Thursday nights with the youth ministry. And so some good little changes there. I also wanted to let you know, after the service, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're having troubles making ends meet The cost of groceries is going up and up and up. We've got a few bags of groceries at this door on your way out. You can grab one if you need some help with food. Uh, And so don't be shy. Go ahead. uh, Take one, take two, take what you need. So This summer we've been reflecting uh, on all of the reasons that we have to sing because uh, as Christians we have many reasons to sing. And today I want to draw our attention to the song that that, that, uh, Michelle, Pastor Michelle, already read for us in Revelation chapter 5. It's a song we've been singing. We've been singing through Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 this morning. I want to draw your attention to this song that is being sung by the heavenly hosts, even right now. The song is being sung. As we sit here in the midst of this service, this song is being sung over us. And it's a song that we are being invited to join our own voices with today. It's found in the last book of the Bible, of course, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. I invite you to turn there with me. We've already read the text, but I'm going to be referring to it over and over again. So on your device or in the pew Bible in front of you, it's very close to the end. Last book of the Bible. You can turn there because I'll be referring to it. Now, even saying the word revelation creates a stir, doesn't it? 
I don't know what it does in you, but the book, this book of our Bible is infamous largely because it is really difficult to understand. It's confusing. The very first word in the book of Revelation is apocalypsis. It's Greek. You know what it means. Like, quite literally, the very first word of this book of the Bible is apocalypse. In the word, it conjures up images of doomsday and, and, and the end of the world, and, of course, the first thing that came to mind, zombies, right? <laughs> but the word apocalypse, it meant something quite positive to the people who first heard it. For them, the word apocalypse, it meant an unveiling. The word apocalypse conjured up the image of a curtain that was being peeled back in order to see what is really there. And that's what this book of the Bible is all about. It pulls back the curtain to, of reality to reveal what is most true about God, about us, and about what God is doing to make all things new again. And in chapter 5, it's as though the curtain of reality is being pulled back to reveal what is happening in heaven, even at this very moment. And so, as I begin to preach this morning, I want you to think about what is most true and real in your own life. I mean, the situation that you find yourself in, I want you to call it to your attention. The challenges that you are facing in this unique season, or maybe it's the opportunities. I want you to think about all the things that cause you stress or joy. I want you to call to mind all the things that have caused pain in this week or excitement. I want you to think about the routines and the busyness and all that you are anticipating with September coming. This is your reality. And so I invite you to bring them to mind. And in the midst of this reality, I also invite you to see a greater picture of reality that is taking place than what we see in Revelation chapter 5. As God is pulling back the curtain to show you what is taking place right now, even in heaven. And here's the first thing I want us to notice. Did you notice that John the Apostle, when, when Michelle read the text this morning, did you notice that John the Apostle is crying? <laughs> He's weeping. We're told that he weeps and weeps. Why is John crying? Well, it's helpful to zoom out for just a moment and realize that, that this vision in chapter 5 actually begins in chapter 4, as I've mentioned. And at the beginning of chapter 4, John is worshiping. It, it's like it's a Sunday morning, a, a bit like this, but, but John is in prison on the island of Patmos. He, he's worshiping God. And as he's worshiping, it's as though God pulls this curtain back uh, on reality and gives John a glimpse into the realities of heaven. And in, John, or in Revelation 4, John sees God sitting on the throne of the cosmos, and God is ruling and reigning in beauty and splendor. The vision is a window into the reality that John could not see from his prison cell on the island of Patmos, right? Despite his hardships, God was still in control. God is still at work we shouldn't forget this. With God, 
the reality that we see before us, the reality of our situation, it is never the whole picture of reality. When the things in life feel out of control, they're never out of God's control to restore and renew. I mean, think of the things that cause you the most distress. Those things are not out of God's reach to to give meaning and purpose to, to restore and renew, to bring His gospel to. There is an almighty God holding all things together, and He is at work always. The story of the Bible always is God working to bend evil toward good. That's what God does. He's doing it even now in your life and in the heavenly realm. And so this is how John's vision begins in Revelation 4. So it begs the question, why is the apostle John crying I mean, shouldn't the assurance that God is in control of of our unpredictable and and oftentimes volatile world, shouldn't that be a comfort to him? I mean, why is he so upset? Well, he tells us in his own words in verse 4. He says this. He says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So in John's vision, God is on the throne of the cosmos, and in his hand he is holding a scroll. And this scroll, it is sealed, it, we're told it is sealed with seven different seals. And John in his own words is saying he weeps because the contents of this scroll are all locked up. They're inaccessible. You see, John understood what this scroll in God's hand symbolized. Scrolls in in John's day, they were the place that you would go to for God's word. The scroll was God's ultimate word to humanity. You see, John understood that the scroll was jam-packed with God's plan for righting the world's wrongs, for bringing judgment upon evil, for dealing with sin, for rescuing the helpless, for restoring all that is broken, for for bringing God's peace to the earth. It was all contained in the scroll. In other words, the scroll was full of all of God's promises for the world. We're told in the text that the scroll has seven seals. And and now the the number seven in the book of Revelation, all throughout the Bible actually, is an important number, right? It, it, it's a symbolic number. It symbolizes completeness. The scroll with seven seals, it represents the completeness of God's plan for righting the world's wrongs, for restoring your life's wrongs, your hurts, your disappointments, your sin, your brokenness, And this is why John weeps. All of God's promises were were seemingly locked up in the scroll because no one could be found who was worthy to open it. Listen to verses 2 and 3 again. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And so John weeps. 
Many of us have cried these same tears that John has cried. We know the promises of God's word. We know them well. But sometimes it feels like those promises are all locked up, doesn't it? That they're inaccessible to us in our life. Maybe you've been praying for a family member for years or a spouse to know healing or or to know the Lord in a new way, but you feel like those prayers have seemingly gone unanswered and you cry out to God. Or maybe you've been through trauma or, or through a deep grief. Maybe you've lost someone you love. And you've wondered if God is really good. And you've cried out. These are the tears that John weeps. He weeps for the kingdom of God to come on earth just as it is in heaven. I I had coffee with a friend last week. And over the past uh, couple years, he's been dealing with some, some unresolved health issues. And he's trying to make sense of his life on the other side of it because it's turned his life inside out. He's been unable to work. He's been unable to be the father he wants to be. He's been unable to enjoy the life he once had. And in the midst of all of this, he lost a child. It was the greatest tragedy that any parent could ever face. And my friend explained to me that coming to church is one of the hardest things that he does. He explains that he still has faith in God, but he is struggling to believe that God is as good as he says he is. For him, it's like the promises of God are locked up. They're inaccessible. And so he weeps tears just like John weeps. Many of us do. John's tears and my friend's tears, they they had me thinking this week. You know what? Sometimes we don't create space in church for lament, for pain. I had someone in my office this week asking the question, Keith, can, can we really be angry with God? Can we really do that? Well, the reality is our Bible is full of people and poems who raise their complaint against God. Remember Naomi? We heard her story earlier this year. Naomi, she accuses God of making her life bitter. And then there's Job. Job accuses God of of turning on him ruthlessly. And then there's the psalmist. The psalmist accuses God of being absent when things get tough. He's there when it's good, but when things get tough, he's absent. And so our scriptures are full of of people who bring their complaint to God. And we have to ask the question, why is that? Why in our scriptures, the book that teaches us how to worship, do they bring such honest and raw emotion, complaint against the Lord? Well, the answer is because God wants us to bring our whole selves before Him. He wants our pain and our protest. I mean, to who else can we bring it? I want to suggest this morning that that even these tears of lament, if you've ever cried them, even these tears of lament are a song of praise to the Lord. I mean, not all songs are happy songs, right? And not all worship is happy worship, right? 
Sometimes the reason we sing is because we're in pain and we're trying to make sense of the messed up situation that we find ourselves in. And the Bible teaches us that we can bring a song of lament to God. He welcomes it. In fact, if you look back at the text in verse 8 of of Revelation 5, it says that around the throne of God are these golden bowls that are full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The prayers of God's people are present before the Lord. The tear-soaked prayers of God's people are present before the Lord night and day. They do not fall on empty ears. God hears every cry, and he receives every prayer. Here's the thing about God. God wants every part of you, every part, not just the nice parts, not just the polite parts. God wants all of you. He wants the good, the bad, the ugly. He wants your song of praise, and he wants your song of protest. He wants it all, because here's the thing that you cannot miss. It's only when you bring your whole self to God that he can actually do something with you. <laughs> right? It's only when we bring all of who we are into his presence that he can transform us into something new. Without bringing your whole self to God, you will never experience the fullness of his power and his healing in your life. God doesn't work in half measures. And so we come back to the text. Human effort will always fall short of what we really need. I mean, think about this for a moment. Like, on on a scale of of perfection and goodness. If, if the stage here, down here, is zero, no, not, not perfect, very imperfect, uh, uh, um, not good, and, and, and the ceiling is the most perfect and the most good, where would we put God? God is at the top. He is at the ceiling. In fact, there is no ceiling for God's goodness and perfection. But on this scale, where would you place, let's say, Mother Teresa? Maybe, maybe a little higher than I can reach, you know, maybe up here, Right? Where would you place your favorite politician? I'm not going to name any. You just pick your favorite one. Where are you going to put them? Where would you put your least favorite politician? (laughs) Maybe somewhere a little below my kneecaps. (laughs) Where would you put yourself? Okay, so if Mother Teresa is up here and, and God is through the roof, the question becomes, wherever you land, how much good do you need to do in order to reach Mother Teresa's level? I suspect it's a lot of good. You could probably spend the rest of your life doing a lot of good trying to reach her level. (laughs) But then the question becomes, what do we need to do to reach God's level? His perfection, His goodness. We can't. It's impossible. that our human effort always runs short. We are sinful people who lack the power and the wisdom to affect God's salvation in our world. No one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy to open the scroll. But here comes the gospel in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. (laughs) 
See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder begins to announce the good news. And the good news is that there is someone who is worthy. And that is someone who has the power and the wisdom to remedy every tear that has ever been shed. In our text, he's called the Lion of Judah. This was a term given to the long-awaited Messiah, who was God's promised leader who would come to sort out evil and establish God's kingdom once and for all. That's what we need, isn't it? We need a powerful lion to sort out the mess in our life and in our world. And maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit powerless in your life. Maybe your bucket is empty. Your strength is gone. Perhaps you've been battling an addiction. Maybe you feel powerless against a certain pattern in your life, a destructive pattern. Maybe there's brokenness in your family or, or the workplace that you're in, and, and you've got nothing left in your tank to give. Look, the Lion of Judah is on the throne of the universe. He's worthy to open the scroll. When the curtain is pulled back, we see the reality that God is the lion who isn't simply fighting our battles. He's victorious over them. And so John is told to look at the lion. And when he looks, he sees what? <laughs> he sees a lamb. Verse 7. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John looks, and he sees a lion who is actually a lamb. And not just any lamb, but the lamb who looks as though it has been slain. You see, John the Apostle sees the same lamb that John the Baptist saw many years before. You remember this? When John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching one day, he called out and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lion that is a lamb is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He is the Lion of Judah with the power to do what no human being could ever do. And when John the Baptist, this is, this is from John's gospel, when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he doesn't simply say, uh, look, the Son of, uh, uh, or the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He actually says this in the original language. He says, look, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, in the original language, John is emphasizing something with his choice of words. And he is saying that Jesus isn't simply one lamb among many others. Jesus isn't simply one solution to the sin and brokenness in your life among many other solutions. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is the lamb he is the one. He is the only one who is worthy 
to open the scroll. And now throughout history, various other religions and and philosophies have claimed to know the solution to evil and human brokenness. They've claimed to know the way to peace and wholeness in our fragmented world. For instance, Buddhism, it says that the solution to the world's evil is actually found where? In you. Right? Remember this? (laughs) And that, the solution to the world's evil is found in you. You simply need to find your inner peace, and it'll make everything better. Islam says the solution to the world's evil is also in you because it comes through your own perfect human efforts to live perfectly in devotion to Allah. The solution is in you. Relativism, it says that the solution to the world's evil is in you as well (laughs) because every individual gets to decide what is good and evil for themselves. So the solution's in you. It's yours to decide. Atheism also says that the solution to the world's evil is in you because, let's face it, (laughs) there's no one else but you (laughs) and humanity to turn to. But John the Baptist and John the Apostle are telling us that the solution to the world's evil isn't in you. And that's good news, because how can you do that? (laughs) We can't. And so the good news is the solution to the world's evil isn't in you. Look, here comes the lion that is a lamb. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only one worthy to open the scroll. He is the only one with the power and the wisdom to do it. The power and the wisdom. In verse 7, there's those strange, uh, um, that, that picture that Jesus, this Lamb who was slain, he's covered with seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is the number of completeness. Horns represent uh, uh, power, <laughs> Jesus is the completeness, the fullness of God's power. Eyes represent wisdom, seeing. Jesus is the completeness of God's wisdom. The lion that is a lamb is the fullness of God's wisdom and his power. But notice this. The fullness of God's power and wisdom comes through a lamb who was slain. Here is the secret of reality that has eluded so many for so long. The secret of reality is that the living God triumphs over evil by letting evil have its way in him. Bruce Metzger puts it this way. Instead of a ferocious lion that hunts and hurts others, The Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. This is the power and this is the wisdom of God that's made way for all things that are broken to be made whole and new again. The question is, have you given your life to the lion that is the lamb? the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. In our text, we see that all the angels do. They give their life to this lion who is the lamb. 
They give their lives to the only one who can open the scroll, and we see that because they begin to sing to him. They sing their song of devotion and praise to him. And so do the creatures that were around the throne and the 24 elders that were around the throne. They all sing to the lion who is the lamb. It's a beautiful picture. But that's not how the picture ends. The picture doesn't end with all of heaven singing. The picture doesn't end with all of heaven giving their yes to Jesus. The picture ends with all of the people on the earth joining in the song. Jesus is inviting each one of us to join the chorus. He's inviting you to give your life to him because he and only he is worthy to open the scroll. Whatever you're facing today, there is a greater reality that you are being invited into. And it's the reason we sing the song that they all sang in Revelation 5 that is being sung even now. Now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, As I hear an alarm going off again, <laughs> maybe others of you in the room can hear this as I pray. Jesus, maybe you're reminding some of us that there are alarms going off in our life. Jesus, we need you because you are worthy to open the scroll. And you see our life, you can read it like a book. And Lord, you know how our story can end. Jesus, you know that we can go through our life living with you, knowing you, or we can go through our life with you as a mist, a vapor, a, a vast idea. And that Jesus, I know the longing of your heart is to live with your people. We know that because you came and shared a meal with, with people. You invite us into your presence through your communion table, which we're turning to in just a moment. So I pray, Jesus, that as we do, that you would open our eyes to the greater reality, that you're in control, and that you invite our tears, you welcome our whole self into your presence so you can make us new, and that you are worthy to open the scroll and invite us into the glories of heaven, both now and forever. And so we commit ourselves to you, Jesus. And we pray that you'd put a song in our heart and you'd give us reason to sing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.